Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, plan for today. Great interview coming up with new Kentucky quarterback Devin Leary. Got to dig into his journey, getting called out by Mark Stoops, overcoming a lot of different injuries that he's had in his career, and now being in this spot as a soon-to-be 24-year-old TBD on if people are going to say that's cheating like they did with Stetson Bennett being 25. Don't think that he's going to get the same sort of narrative, but uh, we will have a great conversation coming up with him. We're also going to do Bold and Brash Final Four Edition, and then we're going to close with Lad of the Week. But first, one of my favorite things we get to do in the offseason, one of my absolute favorite things to do, I love early Heisman bets. I love it. I love it. Now, Will, what's our mantra? Friends never let friends bet on early Heisman favorites. That was, I'm going to, yes, that's, that's good enough. That's close enough. That would pass. If this were a Jeopardy answer, they would accept that. I, okay. I think that they would. Friends don't let friends bet on preseason Heisman favorites, which that's, you said that. So mm-hmm. I'm hundred percent credit there. Um, trademark still pending on that. Not any update TBD. Um, I, and I know what you're thinking person at home listening to this, who just watched Caleb Williams win the Heisman last year, Connor, you're an idiot. First of all, that's hurtful. I don't like being called an idiot. I could call that enough. Don't need that from you as well, person at home. Um, Connor, your mantra is trash, and everything you say from this point moving forward is hot garbage. It's not, though. Here's your stat. Here is your stat to justify why I continue to say that very thing on these airwaves and anybody else's airwaves. Since 2009, there has only been one instance in which a preseason top two Heisman favorite went on to win the award. And when did that happen, Will? Marcus Mariota. That is correct. Jeopardy would accept that and not have any debate whatsoever. Caleb Williams, he was behind both Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud entering last year. So that stat still holds. Actually, each of the last two winners, preseason number three in the Heisman, because that's what Bryce Young was coming into 2021. If that holds true again, and the number three person in the Heisman odds and the preseason wins, eh, a little bit more of a, I don't want to say diverse group, but it's a bigger group of, of guys that can do that because there are, Three guys right now at plus 1,200 with Michael Penix, Bo Nix, Jordan Travis. Them winning the award would all kind of be like the Baker Mayfield type path, which is not impossible, but it it doesn't give you a ton of value for guys that you've seen a lot of football of. And even as somebody who is super high on what those three guys became last year, I'm still kind of looking at that going, eh, that's not great. I typically like to say at least like 25 to one or even 30 to one odds. And here's why. If you say to yourself, I'm approaching this from an entertainment standpoint, I'm not necessarily doing this because I'm going to try and become rich and I have the system absolutely figured out. No gambling method really has the system totally figured out, but your best way of kind of maximizing your value while giving yourself some entertainment is by saying, I'm just going to come into the year and I'm going to pick a guy who's at least like 25 or 30 to one. You're saying all I've got to do is get that right once in 25 or 30 years and you'll come out even. And you'll have a lot of fun in the process because you kind of get a guy that you get to root for and it's not necessarily the favorite. And so it's kind of your guy and you're just, you'll remember that forever. If you picked the time when, you know, the guy who was like eighth or ninth in the Heisman 
won the award or something like that. And it's just fun. And then you could end up being even in the end if you just hit it once, you know, in the 25 or 30 years, whatever it is, depending on how you bet. I just think that would provide a, a very unique opportunity for you person at home who's debating how you should approach betting on the Heisman Trophy. That is way better, in my opinion, than just being like, oh, yeah, Caleb Williams, four to one to repeat. Um, that, in my opinion, is absolutely insane. As we know, last Heisman repeat, Archie Griffin, nearly 50 years ago. Long time. Now that it's such a narrative-driven award, I actually think it's tougher to repeat than it was probably 50 years ago or even 25 years ago when it felt a little bit more like a Lifetime Achievement Award. So including Caleb Williams, Drake May is at number two. He's got 10 to 1 odds. And that aforementioned trio is 12 to 1. So I'd be staying away from those with my favorite preseason bets. In fact, if I just eliminate everybody who isn't at least at 25 to one, that means that I don't like the odds for Sam Hartman, Drew Lahr, the new quarterback at Penn state, the five-star that everybody's really, really excited about. And he's a second year guy, but you know what I'm saying? Jaden Daniels, Joe Milton, Kyle McCord. Those are the guys that I'm staying away from Hartman's 15 to one. Those other four are 20 to one. Interesting to note. There are 10 guys who are 20 to one or better. Last year, there were only three guys who were less than 30 to one. Maybe they're on to me. Maybe. Eh, probably not, though, because I actually went back. I was like, I look, I'm going to look at this two years ago. And then two years ago, they had nine guys in the preseason odds who were listed at less than 30 to one. So maybe it's just kind of cyclical, and that's just the way that it's going. So they're probably not on to me just yet. So I'm looking. We might be looking at different lists because like the company that does this has a ton of lists. Um, fourth would be Bo Nix on the list I'm looking at. I'm I'm just on FanDuel. I'm You're right, gonna... right, right. Is that right? so? He's fourth on yours too. Yeah, it's a, a plus plus twelve hundred. That's so. That's there's there's so there's the tied fun rule. But he's what tied he's for tied, third, tied right? for third. Yeah. I was about to say yeah. That's a that's a very interesting top line, right? Because Drake may I think I mean I don't think it's being mean to say it. he feels like one of the most undeserving Heisman winners of our lives. I mean at least Troy Smith was playing in the national championship game. Wait, I you said like... you said Drake May? Not Drake May. I'm sorry. Um. Caleb Williams, sorry. Okay. Uh, Caleb Williams is like one of the most undeserving Heisman winners of our lives. The way that he went out getting shellacked by Utah again and then losing to Tulane. And I, I feel like if he becomes a two-time Heisman winner, so, so I, I, I just feel like that that's going to be insane. I feel like the narrative is going to push him down because it's almost like we saw these red flags about him not being that guy at the end of last year, and it was kind of too late for the votes to catch up to him. But I, I would be shocked if he was sitting here at the end of the year. And think about this too, because of what we know about him after what happened in the Heisman with the loss at Tulane, like they like they had just a collapse on the stretch. And yes, he still won the award after losing that game to Utah a game, which obviously like he wasn't fully healthy in the second half of that game. But what's the conversation about Lincoln Riley and his teams in general, just that they can't win the big one. Right. We're not probably changing our opinion of Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley. They're associated with one another until we see that happen. Heisman voting happens before a national championship. Want to have a conversation about whether or not that should be the case. That's a different discussion, but I agree with you. I don't think he can really change a whole lot of that discussion and be what would be just a wild thing to accomplish. Like is Caleb Williams really about to do something that we have not seen in 50 years 
that is where I, I agree with you hundred percent. And I'm like that, that value, even if, even if you told me there was a really likely path for, for that to happen in mid November, I'd still be like, well, yeah, my odds are never really going to be particularly good. So I'm not going to get in on that. Right. Think, it's so funny too to see all the guys that have had a chance or even multiple chances to win two Eisens that have just been so much objectively better than him. I'm not being mean, but it's like we've seen Tim Tebow. <laughs> we've seen Mark Ingram. We've seen Manziel. Like it's just it would be so funny if this was the guy that broke through. Um, a la the third Nikola Jokic MVP in a row. And people were just like, How is this happening? <laughs> yeah, like Lamar even, you know, was phenomenal coming back right it's yeah. still it's really difficult bryce young even like last year was still really good but of course him getting hurt kind of that that sort of ended his his heisman campaign even though he only ends up missing like what one in three quarters of, of a game but that's just the way that it kind of played out um i i just i, th- I think the best way to approach this is value that's what i'll continue right. to say each and every year uh there is a there there are a couple of interesting little caveats you can't be on a team that has more than three regular season losses. Shout out 2016 Lamar. Shout out 2007 Tebow. Last time a guy won the Heisman playing for a team with more than three regular season losses was, do you know the answer to this? With more than three regular? I mean, that would have to be Lamar, right? No, he had three regular season losses. Oh, okay. Saying. Gotcha. Yeah. More yeah, than that? No. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Steve Owens at Oklahoma, 1969. Who could forget? <laughs> Yeah. And that was with the shorter season too. So that dude must have been slinging that that rock. Think, think about that. So he was actually he was a fullback, but oh, in a yeah. 10, 10 game season, he carried the ball three hundred fifty eight times. He averaged thirty six carries a game. Had fifteen hundred rushing yards, twenty three touchdowns. His numbers checked out. They were pretty good. But I had to look that up. I was like, he's getting oh the rock thirty six <laughs> times a game. He earned that Heisman Trophy, even though he's not playing for a particularly good team. Back to modern day. I actually think that most of the SEC's best preseason players are not ideal Heisman bets. Does that make sense? Is is that a weird thing to say? Yeah, because of the path, right? I mean, I, 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 I'm going to let you get to it, but it seems like the marquee teams that kind of have e- not easier schedules, but have a path to just kind of blow teams out and look good. It seems like a lot of the best talent on teams are going to be kind of struggling this year a little bit. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's definitely part of it. And I think that... You know, we in the SEC have such such a, a a bright spotlight on a lot of these guys who already kind of have it there, and they can't follow that typical Heisman path that we've seen. So, like, if if I was looking at the best SEC players preseason in no particular order, it's it's KJ, it's Judkins, it's Rocket, Bowers, Perkins, like those guys. And I'm even looking at their odds. I mean, their odds are actually fine. Like. KJ sixty to one, Judkins sixty to one, Rocket hundred to one, Bowers one fifty to one, Perkins one fifty to one. I just kind of wonder though, with a Heisman bet from the SEC, if you're better off going with the less proven commodity before you've actually gotten a significant sample size of them. I think that's maybe the better way to approach it. Even though I would say yes, those would be like based on what they have done on the field, those are your most likely guys to probably be in that conversation. But at the same time, I do think that we tend to reward the out of nowhere or first time, never seen it before. It's new. It's fresh. Let's see what this guy is capable of as opposed to, well, I've seen this before. I've seen a lot of KJ. I've actually already seen a lot of Judkins. I've already seen a lot of Rocket. How much can these guys do? Even Bowers. And I was getting to, into a discussion uh, with this uh, at some point this week, but like his path is so difficult just because from a production standpoint, 
he's being measured against other tight ends, which is all well and good to like win the Mackey or become an all American, or as we talked about becoming the best tight end of the history of college football. But in terms of like measuring him against other receivers, that's what it often comes down to for tight ends. And it's so hard to really break through and have a legitimate chance to be able to do that. So that's kind of why I'm not really that crazy on all those guys and the, the Will Anderson thing, the way that that played out for him with him not even getting to New York kind of puts the Perkins thing on the back burner a little bit, even at 150 to one as tempting as it is to look at that and be like, oh man, that's fascinating. I still think he's going to have so, so much buzz and it would be a real, real struggle for him from a production standpoint to get to that level. So I'm kind of knocking out already the SEC's best players as the guys who I would be willing to put a preseason Heisman bet on. That feels weird, but that feels like it should be the case. Well, and I mean, the SEC is fundamentally a conference of haters, right? Internally and externally. So we're never going to have the cute story out of the SEC, right? Good point. It's very rare. And like Manziel, I won't exactly call a cute story. Um, I think that that was, you know, he was just a very cool guy who just kind of happened at the right time. But even like Tebow, you know, um, when he won the Heisman in 07, then they weren't all that good. It was like, oh my gosh, this guy is like the best player in college football by a mile. You know what I'm saying? But point being, like when you have tape on a guy, number one, the defensive coordinators are going to key in on him and like the SEC is a big pride conference so when it comes to this guy won't beat us you know what I'm saying and you know when you're coming into the year you know KJ you know if you shut down KJ you beat Arkansas um that's why like the Burrow path is a little bit easier or the um, Bryce Young path where it's like oh who is this guy like let's let them kind of catch us sleeping for three or four games because if you come into the season with those expectations it's really hard as we were talking about to repeat and then at the same time yeah like, like we were talking about the path but then externally as well it's like it's so hard at this day and age with the amount of hatred towards the SEC to get someone to feel a certain type of way like we felt about RG3 or Lamar in the SEC because it's just like, oh, wow, you play at Tennessee. Poor you. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're not in the national championship. Okay, tough. You still have this massive stadium, practice facility, all that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like Mac Jones has his unbelievable – has a really good year in 2020 or Kyle Trask, both, both guys right. who I thought were, were really, really good – but everybody's like, look at the pieces around them. Look at all exactly. the help that these guys get. And so, yeah, it is tough to, to do it from that standpoint. And like 2007 Tebow, the way that that played out, we had gotten that little bit of sample size from him in 2006 when he's still Chris Leak's backup and he's doing the red zone stuff. And so you get to see him obviously on that stage. So he kind of had the perfect entry into 2007 as that guy who was on everybody's mind. It was like, oh, what's he going to do when he gets all this opportunity? We, it was still an unknown what his production was going to look like. And then obviously his production stood for itself. And then same thing with Joe Burrow, 2018, you know, he has this year, statistically speaking, that was nothing to write home about whatsoever, but he was almost competing against himself in a weird way in 2019 with the production, how far past it he was in the Joe Brady offense and all those different things. But yes, I agree. I think that's that's something that, that will perhaps limit someone in the SEC, as weird as that sounds. And Devontae was kind of the exception in 2020. And not to take away from what he did, because it was ridiculous, It also helped that it was in a year in which there were absences left and right with COVID, contact tracing. We'll talk about that a little bit with Devin Leary as well. Missing a Power 5 game is quietly a massive historical hurdle to overcome. And Devontae never missed a game in that year, that very weird year, and so many of those other potential candidates did. If you remember Trevor Lawrence, of course, who had the COVID absence in the game against Notre Dame. And I think he he missed by Brian Kelly as well, I remember it, yep legitimate top five. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. Um, okay. 
five favorite bets. Let's start with Carson Beck. 40 to one odds for the Georgia quarterback. That's right. I know the pushback. I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the eight mile thing. I'm going to tell you everything that you're about to say against me. I know it. Uh, he's not a lock to be the starter. I know Brock Vandegrift right there with him. Odds at 40 to one odds. Makers are essentially saying Georgia's starting quarterback is 40 to one. Interesting that they didn't do that for Bama, which I'll get to in a second with the Ty Simpson, Jalen Milrow conversation. I know the other pushback. Don't be the guy to replace the guy. Even Stetson haters have to admit he was a guy. He absolutely was a guy. Whether some want to admit it or not, he was historically good against really good teams. But what I like about Carson Beck is that he actually has a path to surpass Stetson's numbers with arguably an even better supporting cast. Still got Brock Bowers. Last I checked, pretty good. Last I checked, not a human being. Ra-Ra Thomas comes in from Mississippi State, looking like he's going to be able to avoid any potential suspension. You've got Lad McConkey, of course, Oscar Delp, Dominic Lovett, who actually has the same Heisman odds as Bowers, the Mizzou transfer coming in. Isn't that interesting? That lets you know right. about how difficult it is at tight end. Yes, right. that's what I'm saying. That's what, like when you're in one of these positions that you're not even at receiver and you're not even at running back, which we, we think is really difficult to win in this day and age. That is how hard it is. All I can say is that I love the supporting cast. I truly do. And I'm a Bobo skeptic. We know this to be true. I don't think that it's a given that it looks so easy like it often did under Todd Munkin these last two years. I've very much been on the record saying that. In a weird way, maybe that actually helps Carson Beck, and he has to stay late in some of these games, maybe more of these games than Stetson Bennett did. Because... That was another potential issue. If George is blowing these teams out, which many expected they will be with the way that the schedule sets up after they had to cancel Oklahoma, doesn't that mean that Beck's attempts will be limited? It's possible. 2018 Tua like, didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter until, what, like November? And still was, was probably an SEC championship injury away from being able to win that award. And, you know, I still think that there, there's a, a scenario in which Carson Beck puts up awesome numbers and we're having a much different conversation about him and he actually gets to play in the fourth quarter in some of these games. I am more concerned about what Bobo's offense will look like in the likely event that Georgia makes the playoff. Heisman's before that. So I like Beck, even though he's splitting reps with, with he's splitting reps with Vandegrift and he is not a lock to start. How do we feel about that? Um, So I would have loved this if not for the OC change, I think that like people are going to default and kind of I'm trying to think of, there's just so many obstacles now because of the hatering, you know, that will come with comparing them to last season. Hatering. Um, and Oh, like, you know, <laughs> it's not hating it's hatering. It's being yep. a hater. Yep. Uh, you feel it in your bones when you're a hater. Um, yeah. But I think comparing it to, um, to last year is going to be hard. I think that I, I would take a year off of the Georgia offense. Um, Unless, as you talked about, we're going with the tight end position. I think that might be the kind of off the board pick um, because I think at the end of the day, like I, I just think there are too many obstacles for him as a first time starter. But I do think that regardless of what happens this year, I think that next year the offense is going to be in the spot to take that step. But I, I think that people want the man to fail so bad, whoever that happens to be, you know, the the the, the boss of college football. And I think that this is the year that a couple of people are, or that, that the haters are going to be like, ah, we were finally right about Georgia. And then I think they get to regroup, get their guys a little bit older, get the new guard in and then start over. 
So there's Georgia fatigue is what you're saying. I literally think that we all wanted to bury Georgia last year and it didn't work. And so now we're double hatering for this year. It is a narrative driven award. This is this is very much the case. Okay. All right. I understand. I and there should be pushback with all these guys. If you're just sitting there nodding the entire time thinking, yes, absolutely, then these guys would be favorites. But right. that's not why they have value. And they have value for these specific reasons. Similar spot, Ty Simpson, mm-hmm. 40 to 1. Like it. Like it at 40 to 1. Here's my thinking on this. There is risk in putting a future on a guy who isn't a guarantee to start. Jalen Milrow could very well be that guy. I could look really dumb. I think his odds are 50 to one, if I'm not mistaken. They're 50 to one or 60 to one, um, but they are not as good as what Simpsons are. Okay. Um, I guess they are, if if you're looking to get more value, I guess technically Milrow's are better. But um, even if Milrow starts and then like struggles out of the gate, like let's say Milrow wins the starting job and I'm wrong about this, he ends up not being the starter those two games are just kind of lost for Ty Simpson. Um, it is super tough to win the Heisman when you've missed a couple games. Only mm-hmm. Heisman winner in the last four decades who missed a game against Power 5 competition was Charlie Ward in 1993. That's it. A different type of beast. Punted for Florida State and played for the Knicks. I loved Charlie Ward against when, when, when he would be up against those Bulls teams back in the day because – they just always had his number. And Knicks fans were just like waiting. They're like, oh, Charlie Ward's going to be the guy this year. He's going to be the man. And then it just never quite was until the Bulls weren't what they were. Different discussion for a different time. If you think is a guy is going to be the starter and you think he's going to be really good, when is his value going to be at its best? Right now. Right now. If he's named the starter, those odds are going in the wrong direction for you. Like if we found out, if we got off this, if this recording and we find out Nick Saban, for some unknown reason, names Ty Simpson, his QB1. His odds aren't going to be 40 to 1. They're probably going to be more like 20 to 1. Okay? So get in now. Get get that value. That's what this is all about. In the last five years, with three different Bama quarterbacks finished in the top 10 of the Heisman voting, each of those years, that's incredible. If Simpson is trying to do this after Bryce had maybe just won the Heisman, I'd be like, eh, I don't really like that because he's going to be compared to Bryce nonstop in Bryce's Heisman season. But instead, he's got a chance to lead Alabama after it had its worst regular season in 12 years, and he's not doing so with a bunch of household name skill players. You know, it's a little bit different, this conversation, because it's not like he's got a Devontae Smith coming back or a Jalen Waddle or even a Henry Ruggs or somebody like that. I mean, Jermaine Burton, Jason McClellan. A lot of buzz that Malik Benson's going to be kind of the guy, maybe a little bit of those Juice Wells type vibes, what he did for South Carolina. Maybe he can be that guy for Bama. He's coming from the Juco ranks. But I think this is still a group that we have a lot of questions about. So Simpson has a chance to kind of establish himself as the guy. And it's different than what Mac dealt with when Devontae was clearly the difference maker on that team. And as long as Tommy Reese doesn't turn Alabama into a modern day service academy, which I don't think he will, even if he runs the football more, right? Then then there's a chance that we see Ty Simpson put up some really big numbers. And he does have the ability to be a running quarterback. I think he's like a seven to eight rushing TD guy. I don't think he's getting you 15 rushing touchdowns or anything crazy, crazy like that. But you pair that with like a 35 touchdown pass season. That could be enough. That absolutely could be. And weirdly, 
the narrative might favor Simpson and Bama as this see, look, we still got it. We're still competing for a national championship. It's maybe there's not Bama fatigue in the way that there has been or the way that it has felt like. And we've let the door stay open for things like 2018 Kyler Murray. I think that there could be a way in which this actually benefits Ty Simpson. So at 41, I don't hate that at all, despite the fact that I could be wrong before the season even starts on that one. So let me ask you this. Do you think that a QB competition disqualifies one of its participants from winning the Heisman? No. Let no. me let me let me say it like this. If the QB because I'm trying to think about Heisman winners, there have been a couple that have gotten kind of wrapped up in spring before the season. But the only worry, and I, I actually do like the Simpson bet a little bit, but my only worry would be that Saban does a little bit of a QB a two QB system because of the running ability. Do you think that being like losing reps to Milro at the beginning of the season, if that were to be that you you're not worried about that at all? Look at Max Duggan. Look at Max Duggan last year. This guy mm. who wasn't even wasn't even going to be wasn't even going to be the starter coming into the year, and yeah. ends up getting getting that job, you know, by virtue of an injury and and runs with it. So yes, I I think that's a great point, and and I do like looking at that stuff of who's getting a full offseason with the ones how does that impact them cuz i do think that stuff matters and that was something i talked about a lot with why i was so high on joe burrow coming into 2019 obviously not heisman high but still high nonetheless because you get that full offseason and that's different than coming in as a mid-year guy or being locked into a battle but you're right i mean i, I think it's something worth considering kyler murray wasn't necessarily locked in this battle he and bryce young were more of the okay these are former five star guys they're going to get their opportunity to take off and that's kind of all she wrote but yeah i mean 2016 lamar was he was he was going to be he was going to be the starter coming into that year because he fin- he had finished 2015 as the guy so i mean really you'd have to go back to like Jameis, kind of really similar thing where he sits out Coker. one year <laughs> it was a real battle with Coker. listen to jimbo yeah uh, I'm not going to listen to Jimbo on that one. Ever. Is be the starter. <laughs> to Jimbo. With all due respect to Jay Coker, potential future guest of this here show, uh, Jameis Winston was going to be the starting quarterback of that team. You're right, though. There's not a whole lot of guys who were really locked in a true battle. Like but with I, the other guy getting reps. You see what I'm saying? Because that is literally, I don't honestly, my only concern from loving this is that maybe they start first, you know, FCS game, Milrow's getting, you know, 10, 15 carries that would be passing attempts for Simpson. But I, I I think that if you know if anyone could do it, it would be this you know Bama system. So yeah, that's true. That's something to keep in mind, though. I like that. That's a good point to to kind of monitor because yeah, historically speaking, in and at least in the last decade plus, as we've had this passing boom, that has really not been the case quite as much. Um, okay, this one I'm going to get a lot of blowback on. Will Shipley, I like Will Shipley a lot. Sixty to one odds for the Clemson running back. Clemson fans have been. Say what you want about Clemson fans. They have been rightfully upset that Shipley does not get the rock more. He only averaged 15 carries a game last year. That was not enough for how good he was and how much of a difference maker he can be in space. If you include the receptions, which he had 38 last year, pretty good part of his game. He averaged 17.8 scrimmage touches per game. But the Orange Bowl, you got Cade Klubnick starting in his second career game and for whatever reason, Will Shipley gets three carries in the first half. I, that was one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is why they're making the change at coordinator. This this is it right here. So many times in the last two years, if you watched Clemson with their really frustrating passing game 
and their lack of game-changing receivers, which has been a pretty well-documented issue they've had the last few years, it just felt like their only chance at a game-breaking play was Shipley, that mm-hmm. he was it. So now, in steps Garrett Riley, a.k.a. the Broyles Award winner, who was dialing up all these great looks for TCU. It's the air raid. I get it. But they ran the ball extremely well last year. 31st in the country in rushing yards per game. They still ran the ball 38 times per game, which was top half nationally. Tied for 7th in the country with 37 rushing scores. This isn't necessarily a Mike Leach air raid, just in case you didn't necessarily know a whole lot about Garrett Riley and kind of his background. With all due respect to Kendra Miller, who was an excellent player, 1,400 rushing yards, 17 touchdowns last year at TCU. Shipley's a better player. He just is. He he. You watch the things that this guy can do, and you'll say to yourself, okay, you can absolutely build an offense around this guy. He has All-American upside 100%. He missed last spring coming off of his true freshman season. He has had these two years of ineffective quarterback play, and I like Klubnik. I like him – in the Heisman odds, if there were like 40 to one instead of only 25 to one, I'd like eh, maybe even 50 to one on that. This offense is simplified and it is going to be so much better at spacing and tempo. And with those two things, I can just see Shipley taking off. Everybody's going to want to do the white running back comparison. They're going to want to do the, the Christian McCaffrey thing. He famously finished as a runner up to Derrick Henry 2015. Obviously last time that a running back won the Heisman trophy, no, Lamar was not a running back. Don't need anybody saying that. McCaffrey's pre-Heisman numbers are so freaking good. 1,847 rushing yards, 540 receiving yards, also had two passing touchdowns, over 1,000 kick return yards. That was all pre-Heisman. He also played for a Stanford team who started off the year by losing to Northwestern 16-6, to a game in Evanston that was just a total snooze fest. That was the infamous body clock thing that you heard afterwards from Stanford about, yeah, they're, they're complaining about that, and McCaffrey wasn't really good in that game. Um, Clemson is going to have a lot more eyeballs on it than Stanford. I'll say that, okay? Um, if this is a Clemson is back type year, which I'm not, I'm not going to say that, but remember the timing of the Heisman. This is all pre-playoff and stuff like that. So this isn't whether or not they're going to get exposed in a semifinal game or anything like that. But if this is one of those years in which Clemson is sitting there, look, they're in the college football playoff coming off of conference championship weekend or something like that. I think Shipley has the ability and perhaps now the right pieces around him to have that breakout 2000 yard season and 60 to one, 60 to one ain't bad. Not bad at all for all the things that guy can do. Yeah, I think that um, Davo would be smart to do a little bit of the Lincoln-Riley approach, which is, hey, you know, I'm just going to manage my carriers like I'm playing in CWA 14. Like, I'm just going to push my guy to the Heisman because I know that, you know, the competition is, isn't as good as it is in the SEC or the Big Ten, and we're just going to make this known as a place that you can win the Heisman. It is so shocking, um, the fact that, you know, Clemson has not had Heisman when they've had several finalists, runners-up, but the amount of... Even going back to Taj Boyd, you know the, the quarterbacks that they've had come through there. And and the fact that they, yeah. Oh yeah, Spiller. That's he's his running in. backs coach, by the way. Now he's running backs coach at Clemson. Gosh, Isn't that perfect? 
Yeah. We're ancient. We're so old. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, if you look at the, you know, not to, like, go through all the receivers, but there's a ton of great receivers that have played there, too. And those, none of those guys, I think, have even gotten invited. Yeah, like, so it's, like, I think Dabo needs to just, if he's not going to take transfers, if he's not going to, he's finally kind of doing the NIL, finally doing the facilities thing, I think the best way for him to actually keep getting this level of talent up there is just to be like, all right, we're just going to lean into this thing and give this guy 30 30 to 40 touches a game, like, you know, young Alvin Kamara. Just be like, hey, guys, look how fun this is. Look at these highlights. And, like, that's how you're going to have to sell your program if you don't want to do any of the new age stuff. So, I'm, like, I'm not even really kidding. Like, you hire Garrett Riley. You hire, like, you kind of move into this new age. Lean into it, dude. Like, use this guy effectively. Do, like, make them stop him. Because, to your point, you know, you have a younger quarterback. You have a new coordinator. And this is honestly kind of the most proven guy that they have in like one of those big roles obviously like the receivers are kind of coming back but how good is a receiver with a quarterback and an OC that don't really you know so they'll probably figure it out but like I said it's been it's been crazy to me that Dabo is such an old school program guy that he just won't like hey let's just leave Deshaun in and just have him throw four touchdowns in the fourth quarter when we're beating a team and it's so it's so weird like so I, I feel like you should probably try this honestly yeah, Desha- the Deshaun thing. It's a little bit different when you've got national championship aspirations. If you get, yeah, fair. If you get if you get your guy hurt in the midst of a mid November game when you're up thirty five points or something like that, that 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 forever hangs over you, and you always wonder what if. So I get it from that standpoint. But with a pre draft running back, if you're sitting there at like sitting there with maybe I don't even know that the losses matter so much. Obviously, you've got to stay under the three loss threshold. But there is something to be said to, to be said for that. And Stanford kind of did that with McCaffrey. If you go back and you look at his usage oh, yeah. that year, they all of a sudden just decided, oh, you need to be getting 30 touches a game. And his volume was different than Derrick Henry's, obviously, because Henry was getting it more in a traditional sense and he wasn't used in the passing game in the way that McCaffrey was. But they're like, McCaffrey's everything. <laughs> he, he is our best football player, no questions asked. We're going to get that guy involved in every single possible way. Shipley, I'm not going to do the lazy comparison because – Physically speaking, they are different. I mean, Shipley's like 5'11", 200 pounds, maybe even not even that much. He is super shifty, crazy athletic, and he is somebody that can run through contact, which that's what we love. We love those yards after contact. And so it's not like you need to dial up all these looks for him in space. Like he can run through some stuff. He's had to run through some stuff. I think he's in an interesting spot, though, with this new offense, and all eyes are going to be on Kate Klubnik. And Shipley can mm-hmm. kind of be that guy to take off if Clemson's going to have that type of year. Okay. Um, I'm not crazy about this one, but I, I have I have a point that I kind of wanted to make. So I wanted to include him in here. But Marvin Harrison Jr., the Ohio State receiver at 50 to 1. I don't often talk receivers in this discussion because I don't really think seeing one one of these guys win the award in the last 30 years is really good barometer. <laughs> For the position. It's just not. Um, Harrison is also, I mean, being a, a non-QB household name, he's going to be on every preseason All-America team in existence. And typically, I just don't think those guys have a, a, a whole lot of value. And it's so hard for them to surpass high expectations because of the bar that they already set for themselves. But there's a redemption angle with Harrison. After the Peach Bowl injury, He's going to have a new quarterback, Kyle McCord, who has 20 to 1 odds. We're a little bit numb to Ohio State receivers being awesome, in part because Harrison was awesome last year. And there's part of me that thinks that this is really stupid because as great as Harrison was last year, not only with production, but also having those viral catches, which that is an important part of the conversation. If you're going to be a receiver in the Heisman Trophy conversation in this internet age, 
he didn't even crack the top 10 in Heisman voting. And that was in a year in which a lot of people thought that he should have won the Bulletnikoff Award instead of Jalen Hyatt. Tennessee fans, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying a lot of people thought that. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, I wonder if that's because he didn't really turn it up until the latter part of the season. He had a couple of big games early on, but non-conference games against duds like Arkansas State and like Toledo or something like that, that he's putting up these massive numbers. But then kind of down the stretch, and if you look at you know the Penn State game and even the Michigan game, he was good. He was, was not the reason they lost that. And the Georgia game was, of course, after the Heisman Trophy voting. But he really became kind of that go-to must-see TV guy in the second half of last year. And you kind of go through, oh, what's the typical, you know, the Heisman timeline or whatever. You know, they lose the regular season finale to Michigan. He's not playing in conference championship weekend. So maybe that if that hadn't been the case and if he had at least, you know, been on that undefeated Ohio State team, like he's in the top 10 in the Heisman voting. And I don't know how much of that you can really put on him. Devontae won the Heisman in 2020 as a receiver, even though he was already a household name entering his pre-draft season. He won the award that year because he was so much better than anyone else at his position. He had 663 more receiving yards than anyone else in America. That is stupid production. That is like a respectable season as a wide receiver, mate. (laughs) It is the difference between him and the next guy. If somebody has 663 receiving yards in a year, they're like, oh, yeah, maybe a little all-conference honorable mention. Watch list? Yeah. yeah. Get him on all the watch lists. Oh, let's get him out to the the Shrine Bowl. Maybe a little Senior Bowl action for this guy. But you like he was so much better than everyone else. And there was this understanding that the quarterbacks in the mix – like we talked about with Mac, with Trevor Lawrence, with Kyle Trask, they were really good, but they didn't necessarily have one of those generational years, much like the one Joe Burrow had the year before. So could Harrison just look like the guy who is so superior at his position? And maybe it's like 1,600 receiving yards and 20 touchdowns pre-Heisman, plus a bit of the redemption after the concussion against Georgia. Could he follow that path? I think at 50 to one, that path is there for him. I do, especially if it plays out like 2020 where none of the quarterbacks are earth shattering and he is just so much better than everyone else. We're like, oh my God, this guy is a generational type talent. He feels like he should already be in the NFL. I mean, there's no denying whatsoever. If that guy could be in the NFL this year, like he's the first receiver off the board. Like that, that is pretty clear. So if he looks like that, and I always go back to the thing with Devontae in 2020 where he was an all-pro NFL receiver playing in college football. That's what it felt like. I think that Harrison could be that type of guy, understanding the pushback, understanding how difficult it is for a receiver to outshine his quarterback, and especially a receiver who doesn't come out of nowhere, and he is already very much a household name. So my, my two questions for that would be, Who's your quarterback, right? So it looks like there's a battle between Cal McCord. We're feeling Cal McCord. You're feeling Cal McCord. All right. That, that's, I'd say that's one of those where it's like, is it really a battle? Probably Cal McCord. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is like, I, you know, normally you talk about the receiver room, but it feels like he's the only guy kind of left. Like Book was left. And right. He's a stud, but no, he's good. But it's not like there was a super crowded room last year. You know what I'm saying? As long as it's not, because there's just no way for one receiver to win a Heisman in the room last year. 
But and and I mean, if you think about it, with Smith, right, an injury also helped him a little bit get there. Uh, the the Waddle injury. injury, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Because you could say you could have said the same thing. Like, how is he going to win the Heisman? That you got Waddle right there, who could be better than him. Yep. But then you know, so I, I mean, I could see it from that standpoint. Where it's, I hate to say you have to have an injury, but you kind of, you know, if he's the guy, the way that Smith was, and they're good, then yeah, it's I, I see it. So if Ibuka goes down, watch what his fire up those do. bets. Yeah, fire <laughs> up those bets. You're like, oh man, he's following the Devontae path. Yes, yeah. could absolutely happen. And also, you know, did that with a new starting quarterback as well. Mm-hmm. And that's like if you're when you're replacing CJ Stroud, kind, you know, kind of similar to replacing Tua. You're like, oh, is are they really going to be able to take off and kind of be that guy? And then we we kind of learned very, very early on that Devontae was capable of taking that next step. Okay, I got one more here. Okay. Will Howard. Not Walker Howard, but Will Howard, the Kansas State quarterback, 120 to 1 are his odds. Major dart throw, admitting that, fully admitting that. I'd love to know what his odds would be if he had looked really promising against Bama instead of sort of turtling in the Sugar Bowl. I mean, that game, once once Alabama got off and running, that was was all she wrote, and it was an ugly day. Remember, though, he's not going to have to face Bama before the Heisman. You're not going to have to worry about that. So that's a key thing to remember. He's facing big 12 defenses. Also remember, basically got half a season's worth of starts and he had 18 total touchdowns for a Kansas state team that won the big 12 and returned 73% of last year's offensive production. He is one of the guys who um, he is like, he, he isn't necessarily in this spot where he's going to be the most popular name, even within his own conference. And so he can kind of still come out of nowhere, even though he's been around longer than people probably realize, because he was starting as a true freshman a little bit for, you know, he, he was filling in for Skylar Thompson and stuff. Adrian Martinez isn't there anymore. He is somehow finally out of eligibility. Finally, he's going to be a doctor of football now. <laughs> you think he's better than what we got? Famous last words from a certain Scott Frost as to why he was not taking Joe Burrow from the transfer portal. And he was instead going with true freshman, Adrian Martinez. Um, but yeah, that means Will Howard gets to be the guy. He's going to get a full offseason with the ones. Love that. Love that he's got stability at the top with Kleiman back. He's got Colin Klein running the offense again. Love, love, love that it's a former Heisman candidate in his ear. Probably should have won the Heisman if we're being honest, but the Heisman narrative favored Manti Teo in 2012. Colin Klein knows his stuff. He has shown he is not just oh, hey, we're going to give you this promotion. Hey, you're kind of like a legacy deal. No, clearly last year, whatever sort of, uh, you know, predetermined bias we have about a guy of his stature, no, I think he surpassed expectations. He has been really complimentary of Howard's progression. If you kind of watch what's been happening out of spring camp there, he has just kind of been that guy who has looked significantly different than what he was when we first saw him. And so there might be some people who are thinking, ah, you know what? This is the guy just game did not slow down for him early in his career. They probably didn't tune in a whole lot to the latter half of Kansas state season, a little bit, maybe like the max, the max Duggan vibes. And everybody's mm-hmm. going to be, want to be looking for the next max Duggan. I realize this is the second time we've referenced him on this segment, but the difference is that Duggan had a new staff and Howard, I think should benefit from stability Got to find him some weapons, especially with Deuce Vaughn off to the NFL. Finally, Uh, I am intrigued by Keegan Johnson, who left Iowa for greener pastures, was just like, get me out of here. 
whatever I need to do, get me out of here. I said, Brian the Gobi Ferris? Desert would be greener pastures than Iowa. <laughs> Buddy, the Sahara is greener than, than Iowa. Um, they also have Tyler Lockett's younger brother, Sterling Lockett. That's right. Name to remember, Sterling Lockett, up-and-comer, uh, somebody that they're really excited about there. And again, we're talking about 120 to 1, okay? We're talking about 120 to 1. You could do a whole lot worse than having a returning starting quarterback for a Power 5 champ who I, I think showed major promise down the stretch in half a season, and he basically gets his entire offensive line back too. So just something to keep remember. Got to find those weapons at receiver but you're talking about teams, you need these teams to kind of be in that spot where they're like at least nine and three. You don't have to pick, you know, a team that's going to automatically win the national championship, but a guy like that who could show us something that we haven't necessarily seen before. So that's the five. Anything else on this subject? Anything else that came to mind that I might have just breezed right past? I have two absolute sicko bets that I think I'm going to throw $5 on each of. Um, so number one is uh, Devin Leary. I think he is going to be like, what an intro will what an intro. I, yeah, I, I think, you know, he got Cohen back. I think that, you know, when you look at kind of the path of guys, obviously, you know, you kind of got the Georgia game, which could be the game, you know, that we talked about some of these guys with these. Cause I was really thinking when you asked me like, which teams like kind of don't get the, the hate. And it's like, I think that people like them. I think that people, you know, they have kind of like good um, PR. I think that he's really talented. I think that they have the narrative of, okay, last year they were not, you know, they, they were kind of a 500 team, even, you know, with, with Levis. And I think that, you know, it could be this huge jump, right, from last year, just based on them winning, you know, nine or 10 games, just because the line gets better, Cohen is back, and Leary is as good, if not maybe a little bit better than what we saw last year, which is crazy to think, right? Um, so I, I think that, you know, he's at plus 8,000 I'm seeing here. That's 80 to one. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's good. Uh, that's worth $5. Uh, and then this one, this guy's not even on the board, but you know what? $5 isn't a lot of money. Robbie Ashford. Um, huh. I think huh. that if you look, okay. So <laughs> one of my coworkers, Auburn fan, I always talk about, talked to me today, just walked up to my desk, slammed his fist to the table. Finley's taking QB one reps. And I'm like, this is a scam. I'm like, this is a scam. I know this is going to go. And if the, a third coach is swindled by this man, fine. This is the time to buy Robbie Ashford stock. Because if you look at the guys that have been successful under Hugh Freeze, okay, this is the guy that I think could be okay. And maybe it'll be next year, but I'm just going to buy my stock super low. You know, maybe they struggle this year. I don't know, but I think that, you know, and maybe he doesn't win the job out of the gate and that just disqualifies him that way. But if you look at where they're coming from, right, new head coach, all this different stuff, you look at what he's been able to do with our boy Malik, right? So I don't know. I, I think that if we talk about off the radar guys that aren't going to receive a lot of hate, obviously, you know, the QP situation, maybe there's some hate going on there. But um, I think that those are two universities with generally pretty good PR and reviews. And I think that they both have quarterbacks that could be really useful with the OCs and talent they have. So, you know, it would be just all sorts of ironic, all sorts of ironic, because um, you're right. And I am super intrigued by Robbie Ashford. I find myself talking about him a lot in the offseason because and I wouldn't be talking about him as much if he had stayed with with Brian Harson or something like that. And it was it was a really similar offensive scheme or maybe they brought in a defensive minded head coach and the OC hire didn't really intrigue me that much. But with freeze and what we know he can do very well, it is a lot more interesting. What would be really funny and ironic is if after spring <laughs> we find out Robbie Ashford's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to be the guy here. Sees the writing on the wall, hits the portal, much like I dealt with 
when I saw Malik Willis in the spring game and said, <laughs> this guy's the eighth best quarterback in the SEC. And then boom, Gus Malzahn's like, yeah, he's third string. <laughs> and then he yep. hits the portal and he ends up going to Hugh Freeze at Liberty. Time is a flat circle. Everything just, it just repeats itself if you're around long enough. But yeah, that, that is, that is an intriguing one. Interesting that he's not on the board. He's not on the board it's at not. all. Yeah. I just, oh. I just looked and it's like, oh. that's what I'm saying. Like they're doing the whole, like, Oh, we don't really know. It's like, bro, you know, like again, I want Finley to teach some kind of a class at whatever university he ends up at. How do you keep, you're not actually fooling Hugh Freeze. He's too smart. I'm not buying it. It's going to be Ashford. I've listened, I've listened to TJ talk and I, I like him and I listen. He's to a him. good guy. I don't dislike him as a person. I think he's a great leader. I love how he talks. Like he's, he's really eloquent. I just don't think he's a good football player. I know, I know. And I've listened because I, my guy, Adam Brenneman had him on, had him on a show a year ago and I was like, kind of buying back in a little bit. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I like the way that he talks about pressure. And he said something to the effect of like, you know, pressure is when you're a single mom and you've got, you know, you've got a baby to feed and you've got three jobs or something like that. I'm like, I like that approach. I like that. He says things like this. And I'm like, Oh, wait, 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 don't remember. He's a statue in the pocket. Like he, he's going to frustrate you so much. Don't buy into TJ Finley again. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that there will be a lot more momentum surrounding whoever Hugh Freeze's starting quarterback is. If we see this proof of concept in year one, and especially if he builds Robbie Ashford up, I'll be honest with you. I didn't want to include Devin Leary in this, even though I do like the 80 to one with him because I was going to come off really biased. But I just, oh yeah, the exact episode that we have Devin Leary on, we're also going to talk about him as a dark horse Heisman candidate with great odds. At 80 Crazy to one. how that happens. Yeah. yeah. But like he's competing against like Will Levis's numbers last year and Will mm-hmm. Levis's numbers actually a couple years ago, they weren't standout. So it's not to say that, he is going to be in the spot where he's going up automatically against this guy who was just like on such a different level, but preseason ACC player of the year for a reason coming into the 2022 season, a guy that they have very, very high expectations for uh, in Lexington. No doubt about it. And the, the cool thing is too, like we talk about, you know, um, like some of these odds are so high, you know, you talk about the Georgia quarterback, where it is the Alabama quarterback, whoever it is, because of the expectations of their programs. But I do think that both of these guys are in situations where they could lose a game. They could play poorly in a game. And sure. if they have a big game against or Good an point. okay to mid plus game against the Georgia team, that's been unstoppable or an Alabama team that, you know what I'm saying is like, both of those teams are also a little bit in flux. So like each of their biggest game is going to be against these huge powers that, are might be kind of in like a down year. And so these guys could have the Johnny Manziel game where it's like, oh my gosh, Devin Leary, he's the guy now. And so, yeah, I'm just like projecting that and how fun it could be because I'm almost, I want to zag even more. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, if you are thinking about putting a bet on Devin Leary, first of all, do so responsibly. Um, second of all, maybe just listen to this interview first and then yeah. you can kind of make up your mind if he's your guy or if he's not your guy. But I think you will definitely like hearing Devin Leary. So before we kick it to that, uh, a quick word from our friends at Underdog Sports Betting, even though we just talked a whole lot about it, not legal in a bunch of states in the SEC, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, to name a few. Uh, I want to talk to you about Underdog Fantasy. You might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past. Underdog is a new platform that is extremely popular right now, and they have some awesome contests where you compete for real money. It is a great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement with Underdog. If you go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog, you can automatically double your deposit when you join. Sign up, throw in 50 bucks. They'll throw in 50 more dollars. It is a great way to get some money to play in these contests. You can pay 
pick higher or lower for different players. Really similar to sports betting player props, which just like we talk about all the time with our preview pods. And yes, you can put real money on the line. You can do this in all of those SEC states where sports betting is not legal. Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas, you get it. Uh, Underdog's awesome. It is super fun to do while you're watching any sport in your living room and you can win some real money. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. Take advantage of our promo where Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. $100 absolutely free. That is SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. All right, here is Devin Leary. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is new QB1 in Lexington, Devin Leary. Uh, Devin, you just wrapped up practice. Like, literally, you just got off the field, like, still in practice gear and everything. Uh, late last week, your coach, Mark Stoops, he was probably about as blunt as one can be after a spring practice in his assessment of it and said he was pissed after a couple of lackluster days of practice. Too many guys he felt like were entitled. Let, let's start there. What was practice like before that? And what's practice been like after that? Yeah, I mean, you know, before, you know, so we had, I think it was three practices before we went on spring break. Um, so we had three practices, then we had a week off of spring break, and then we came back and honestly, we came back a little sluggish, uh, just overall, uh, all three phases of, you know, offense, defense, special teams was just sluggish. I mean, we didn't have day one energy. Um, and you know, you could tell coach Stoops was getting mad, you know, he, he holds us to a high standard and, um, you know, it, it was just something that he expects out of us to, you know, if we if we truly want to be great this season, if we truly want to accomplish the things that we say that, you know, our actions on the field and our energy on the field need to reflect that. And they didn't. Um, and that's kind of why he was getting pissed. And, you know, he, he like I said, holds us to a high standard and, you know, expects us as players to, you know, uphold that standard to make sure that other guys are, you know, every single day approaching every single day, like a game day. And, you know, quite honestly, we weren't. And, you know, he kind of just called us out for it. And, you know, leaders on the team had to step up, uh, you know, starting with myself. Um, you know, I needed to do a better job of, you know, speaking up and making sure that everyone was prepared for practice and everyone, you know, approached every day in a professional manner, uh, because that's what these coaches expect out of us. And, you know, ever since he kind of drilled us and, uh, went went kind of hard into the media and just kind of laid it all on the line you know we responded well I mean we had a really good day today um it was really good to see you know defensive guys you know Zion uh stepping up you know just kind of speaking to the group that you know exactly what coach Stoops was saying that every single day how we were approaching wasn't good enough and then even just like guys today Eli Cox saying that the way that we stepped off the field today is how it needs to be every day so that was really good to hear I mean, be honest, like when he says, hey, we don't have leaders on our team, you're like, I'm, I'm a quarterback. Like he's, yeah. he's got to be talking to me in some way, shape or form here, right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I think, you know, being a transfer kind of, you know, fulfilling my role here, you know, you kind of got to figure out your way. But, um, you know, obviously we're practicing now. Obviously they brought me here for a reason to be the guy. And, you know, I, I need to you know, put it on myself to kind of step out of that comfort zone of, okay, I've been here for a couple of weeks now. I've been around the guys. They know, you know, what type of player I am and how I approach the game. Now I just, you know, need to vocal, vocally more speak up. And, you know, every day of practice, instead of just going about my business, you know, making sure that I'm bringing guys along with me as well. Um, and I think that's just what he expects out of me. And like I said, it starts with me. Um, it starts with the veteran guys on this team. And, you know, we all, you know, we talked, we took it personal that, 
you know, at the end of the day, is it, it is up to us. It is up to, you know, me as a starting quarterback. And, you know, today was a much, much better response than uh, the other day after practice. Your new offensive coordinator, my personal doppelganger, Liam Cohen. Uh, I, I know getting to play in his scheme, it was a big reason why you wanted to to, to come to Kentucky. What, what sold you from a schematic standpoint, especially knowing how much talent you guys were going to have at the receiver position? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, it starts with just the pro style type of offense, um, the terminology that he uses and, you know, just how much it translates to get to the next level. I mean, Obviously, I've had, you know, success in the previous three offenses that I just came from at NC State. But, you know, kind of talking to him when I was in the portal, you know, just breaking down my film and him showing me different cutups. Um, you know, he he was just explaining how, you know, my game can just elevate to a much higher level that, you know, I need to be developed even more than what I already am. And, you know, just having those, you know, person-to-person conversations. I mean, he was once a quarterback. He understands the position. He coached at the highest level. Um, he had great success here in 2021, and then he left. And, you know, like I said, he's a player's coach, so he kind of understood where he stood uh, by coming back. And, you know, it, it was very just like a no-brainer for me once I connected with him, you know, met him personally and understood, you know, how he operates. And, I mean, the offense is – you know, in my opinion, there's not many offenses out there that could get you ready for the next level and just having success here as well. So uh, I had him rank our beards, the three of us, me, you and him. Um, <laughs> we all got a little bit of that ginger in our beard. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to guess how he ranked our beards? All right. Um, he probably gave himself one. No, he did. He went three. He was very humble. Very humble. Okay. Okay. So then he probably went you one, me two, him three. No, he gave you. He gave you one. He's like, no that's, that's like yeah. No he's, like, he's he's got the best flow to it and everything. He keeps yeah. It, he got gets it lined up and everything. I'm what's, scruffy right now, man. I'm scruffy. I'm not gonna lie. What's the secret to growing a great beard? I'm sure many people listening to this need to know these things. I'm sorry, but it's genetics. It's genetics. <laughs> I, I think I've honestly had a full beard since like sophomore year of high school. Oh my so, God. Yeah, this, this, I mean, it gets annoying at times, but I mean, I guess I could just blame my dad. That's like seven years for you because you're 23. You're going to be 24 this fall. Like that's, that's a long time to be beard. <laughs> So you were the kid that you grew like way earlier than everybody else. You were like the kid who hits puberty like at that early age. Yeah. Like you can grow the beard, and all your friends are like, "Man, I'm like not even using a razor yet. What are you right. doing?" Right, and you know when you're a sophomore and you get a little bit of hair, you just try to keep it on there forever, and you barely have it connecting. And you tell your barber to line it up, and <laughs> I mean, I, I've been trying to you know just keep this thing fresh. Okay, so that the secret of the good beard is genetics. What's the secret to to playing quarterback at, at the high at that's at, at an extremely high level, which you've been able to do in your career? Yeah, I think you know the the biggest challenge. I think every quarterback can agree is you know just having you know a mental and you know kind of a calmness to you when you enter that huddle. Um, you know, even just every single day in the locker room, having your teammates realize that. Once you're under center, once you're calling the plays in the huddle, that they can trust you, that they can believe in you, and that they understand that no matter what's going wrong, no matter what's going right, you're going to stay that same person every single play, every single day, just very, you know, just even kill, kind of like what I like to say, um, because it can be challenging. I mean, this is 
in my opinion, one of the hardest positions in all of sports. Um, but, you know, it, it's about that mental stability every single day, approaching it with the same mindset, making sure that you're bringing others around you um, and just making sure that you approach every single day like a professional. I thought you were going to say the key is uh, the secret is getting that stamp of approval from Philip Rivers. Um, <laughs> he loves you, man. Like I, I saw uh, what he said with uh, with my guy, Jake Crane. And he was saying how he's like, yeah, he's going to break all my records at NC State. What's what's that relationship like? Do you still keep in touch with him? Uh, so the, the last time I heard from Philip Rivers, he actually, when I was at NC State, spoke to our team uh, via Zoom. Um, he kind of just hopped on the call. And I mean, you can immediately tell how much this game means to him. I mean, he's so passionate. Um, still to this day, there's tons of quotes all over NC State's building from Philip Rivers. And, you know, I kind of just, you know, just went up there and got on the Zoom and talked to him a little bit, just kind of picked his brain. And, you know, one of the biggest things that he was kind of just saying is, you know, if you approach the game every single day, on the field as professional, but you don't off the field, that people aren't going to respect you as much on the field because, you know, you're going to basically be trying to live two different lives. And he was just basically saying everything needs to, you know, come in line in your life to have success on the field. Um, and I mean, just being able to pick his brain and just see how passionate he is. You know, he, he was a big firm believer that every single day you need to approach the game of football in a tough matter and a hard mindset because it's a violent sport. And um, I mean, you can clearly just see throughout his career that, you know, that definitely paid off for him. I want to talk about your your former offensive coordinator, Tim Beck. Uh, true or false? He is like the nicest, sweetest human being on the face of the earth. True. Very true. <laughs> yeah, Coach heard, Beck is awesome. So what's it like in, in his offense? Because like I, I've I've shared like kind of my frustration with some of its limitations, <laughs> but I always come back to the belief that like, He's just the nicest guy. And sometimes you are in these spots because people really respond to you like really, really well. And he's done that at a variety of places. What was your relationship kind of like with him and seeing his offense operate? Yeah, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, honestly, when Coach Beck got there in 2020, I mean, he completely flipped the script of our offense. I mean, right when he got in, you know, he kind of just set the footprint out of what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. We were going to have fun. We were going to score points and we were going to play fast and physical. Um, he was a very big believer that everything starts up front. You know, he wanted to establish the run game, but, you know, we were big off of, you know, in that year going fast, spitting out some RPOs and then taking shots down the field. I mean, one of our top play calls in my time being with Coach Beck was just four verts. We just ran four straight verts. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was awesome. And, you know, like I said, from a quarterback standpoint, you know, you got to earn that trust of your uh, coordinator that if he's going to call four verts and, you know, they drop eight guys out, he trusted me enough that, you know, I would take the check down, that I would take care of the football. And, I mean, it, it was just really cool to be able to collaborate with him. You know, uh, my time at NC State, before he got there, I had two different coordinators and, you know, it was kind of just like a mixture of, you know, multiple different offenses trying to blend together where, you know, when he kind of got there, he had a very, you know, stagnant system that worked for him in the past and, you know, guys rallied behind him. And like you said, he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Um, he's a, he's a brilliant mind offensively. And I mean, he's going to have great success at Coastal Carolina. How much did him going to Coastal Carolina impact your decision to want to enter the portal? Uh, it didn't much. It really didn't. Um, you know, I, I'm nothing but happy for him. 
Um, it kind of honestly caught me by surprise. I, I, I didn't know he was going to leave and, you know, the opportunity just came open and he actually gave me a call uh, before he accepted it just to let me know that he was going to, and, you know, he loved coaching me and, um, you know, he was just very, very happy for that opportunity. There's a, a great story uh, in the athletic and Cole Arbach wrote it uh, like right around this time last year that kind of documented your journey. And, and it's been a journey. I mean, like you said, like you're gonna be 24 this fall, like the, the all the different things that you've had to deal with over the course of your career as, as now as a six year guy, you've dealt with your fair share of injuries. What was the worst one? And why was it breaking your fibula and getting the to a tightrope procedure? Uh, um, I mean, honestly, I would say my worst one was probably this past one, my, my pick Interesting. Uh, only because I've never not been able to throw in my life. My whole entire life, I've always been able to throw since I was a little kid. I've always, you know, my parents even got tired of me when I was super young, every single day, just asking to have a catch, whether that was baseball, football, like anything, I would always be able to throw. And, you know, when I, when I did break my leg, that was probably the most painful when I broke fibula and the tightrope, but I was still able to throw, like I was still at practice scooting around on a scooter, but anyone tossed me a ball, I was still able to do what I love every single day. And that was, you know, slinging the rock around where, you know, back in October when I got hurt, it was pretty scary, honestly, you know, going down to Dr. Andrews in Pensacola, Florida. And the first thing I hear is he's never done a pec surgery on a quarterback before. And what? Yeah. So he goes, um, he's never done this before. And he's honestly not really sure when I'd be able to throw again. And if I'd be able to even throw again, the same way that I used to. So immediately God. my heart just sank. I mean, I'm, I'm like, shoot my whole life I've been throwing bbs at you know everyone and that's my favorite thing to do and now I'm hearing from one of the top doctors in the world that he's never seen this in a quarterback and he doesn't know how I'll recover so I think you know from a mental standpoint that was very like challenging to take on um just because you know it's what I love to do and you know I know obviously playing quarterback that's your money maker and when someone kind of breaks that down to you you know you start to rethink a lot of things um I knew with my leg that you know I was going to attack rehab really hard it was you know a severe injury but you know at the end of the day I knew I was going to walk again I knew I was going to be able to throw again but when I hear that I might not be able to throw the same again that's kind of when I was you know kind of going down a, a tough path to figure out what was next for me so I would definitely say that one Okay, so the surgery ended up going well, obviously, but what's, yes. when's that moment when when you're told, hey, I've actually never done this on a quarterback before? Were you already in Pensacola when that happened, or was that – I can't decide what's worse because if you find that out before the flight, that flight, you're just probably sweating bullets the entire time. No, I, I actually found out when I got there. So when I got there, they did all the, <laughs> the, the ultrasounds, the MRI. They did everything, and, you know, he's kind of just – sitting there and he's calling all these different physicians and asking all around, you know, college, NFL, and just really asking if anyone's seen it before a torn peck and a quarterback. And, you know, he told me that he, he didn't hear anything. He, he said he, I'd never heard it. Um, you know, me and my mom are kind of just sitting there like, well, should I try to rehab it? Should I just try to, you know, work it out as long as I can and hopefully, you know, it'll heal through the rehab process or, you know, does he, go in and just fix this thing and hope for the best. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, me and my mom, we really just prayed and we just sat there in the waiting room and just at the end of the day, just went with our gut decision to trust Dr. Andrews to just go in and fix it. And that's what he did. I mean, he he put some anchors in my arm, attached, you know, the pec breastplate across my arm, back to my arm. And uh, here I am today, still throwing the ball, just like nothing ever happened. That's absolutely crazy. I didn't realize that how, you know, how unique that that was, because I mean, you hear something like that and it's like, all right, you know, you can kind of put two and two together and injuries are just so commonplace now in the sport, but like, it's one thing to be told, Hey, you, you're going through this, this significant procedure. It's another thing to be told kind of what you were back in 2020, the, right. the, the contact tracing where you look like you're going to be, you're going to be the starter to start off that, the 2020 season and then sure. boom, contact tracing 14 days and you're out. Like take us, take me back to kind of that process and how frustrating that was, especially since you never tested positive for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That was you're taking me back here. Uh, I remember. So just, just to give you the rundown, uh, 2018, I came in, I redshirted, uh, redshirted that whole year. And then 2019, I was a redshirt freshman and I kind of got a little bit of feel coming in the second half of Syracuse and Boston college, getting my feet wet playing college football and Florida state for the first time. And I ended up starting the last five games of that season, my redshirt freshman year. So redshirt 2019 is finished. 2020 is coming around. And like you said, you know, I finished off the previous year, the starter all through spring. I was a starter all through fall camp. I was a starter. And then one day I kind of just walk into the facility and they stop me before I get in. And they uh, basically say, Hey, someone at your lunch table tested positive. You got to go back home uh, for contact tracing like protocol. So, you know, it was tough. I was at home. I remember every single day hopping on Zoom calls, just trying to join in in the QB meeting, making sure I'm still taking notes and staying updated. At this point, you know, we're two weeks out from a game. Um, so I'm making sure I'm having all my game plan notes right. We were playing Wake Forest. And uh, I remember I get back for practice the week of the game. And uh, the coach kind of – Coach uh, Beck kind of just pulled me in and said, yeah, we're going to go with uh, – the number two, because we feel like he gives us a better shot with you being out. And, you know, it was challenging because 2019, I started as a third string and I kind of had to work my way up to finally get the reins to start the last five games. So, you know, heading to the whole offseason of 2020, you know, my mindset was good. I was, you know, very eager to get on the field. And then, boom, I come back from being healthy um, and being told I lost the spot. And, you know, that was that was really tough. Um, but I mean, I kind of just went back into the mindset like I was a third string the year before that, you know, any given play, I'm going to be ready. You know, I'll make sure that each and every week um, I'll prepare like I'll be the starter. Um, I ended up not starting the first two weeks of that season um, and second half of the second week. Uh, I finally got my shot and kind of just took it and ran with it um, and ended up playing, I think. I think it was like four more games and then that's when I broke my leg. So that was a, that was a challenging year, but uh, I mean, everything happens for a reason. I mean, how many times in, in your career have you kind of thought, like, maybe this is just not what I'm supposed to do. Maybe, maybe, you know what this, like all the signs are just saying, Hey, maybe this just isn't in the cards for me. And I, I should figure out something else to do with the rest of my, my, my time and figure out what's next in the, the next phase of my life. Honestly, never. 
I, I, I can honestly say never just because, you know, I have, I have a little brother that plays quarterback as well at uh, University of Illinois. And, um, you know, I just kind of do this for him. I mean, obviously I do this for all my family. I do it for my mom and dad. But to have a younger brother play the same position, what motivated me was if I could get through this and I could overcome all this adversity, I'm just going to prepare him this much more to just give him feedback, to let him know what I've been through. So just let him know, like, this is what comes with the sport. This is what comes with the position. Like, you got to embrace it. And, like, when I was hurt, when I was a third string, when I got hurt again, when I got contact traced for COVID, like, you know, it's tough. But for me personally, like, that motivates me. That that makes me want to, you know, respond that much even more. And the the moment – that I can respond and overcome it and, you know, go from breaking my leg in 2020 to a record breaking season in 2021. That's not only going to just prepare me for my future, but it's also going to prepare my little brother as well. So that was kind of my continuous motivation. And honestly, never once did that cross my mind that, you know, my career or football was ever coming to an end. 2021 is the year where you you become a household name in, in the sport and obviously you had had moments before then but was there was there a moment in your college career in which you said I get it it kind of clicks for me right now maybe you're sitting there in a film study maybe it's sitting there making a read in a game where you just felt I finally feel like the game is slowing down enough for me and I'm ready to take this on yeah I would say I would say it went back to 2020, honestly. My first ever start against Pitt, um, we ended up winning on a two-minute drive uh, with no timeouts. I think it was, I'm not sure exactly, like a minute 30 or a minute 50, something, minute 47 on the clock. We were down by, uh, I want to say four. I think it was like 20 to 24. And basically, like, that's what prepared me. That's what made me know that, you know, I could do this thing, that – you know, this, this is what I'm here for. Um, we ended up, you know, going down beating, I think they were like 20 ranked 20th or maybe like they were ranked 25th. Uh, but basically having a two minute drive to go down, win the game in my first ever start that season. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is how I play the position. This is what I'm here for. Like, this is why, you know, I decided to come to NC state and play quarterback and, you know, obviously having to suffer an injury later that year uh, was unfortunate, but that was definitely a game that made me realize, like, this is what I'm here for. I think everyone wants to know with this year and the outlook for for this Kentucky team, okay, is that offensive line going to protect you? Because well-documented issues last year, you know, has to get better, has to get back to the big blue wall and, and what we have come to expect throughout the Mark Stoops era. But, you know, also – are you going to get back to the player that you were, you know, in 2021 and, you know, what made you preseason ACC player of the year last year? What if protection remains an issue? What, what makes you feel like you're, you're kind of ready to handle that and that you can kind of be thrown anything and be able to overcome it? Yeah, I think, you know, first starting with the offensive line, um, you know, that's a big conversation that's going on this off season is, you know, if the offensive line is going to improve, if they're going to be able to, you know, establish the run game if they were going to protect for me. And it's kind of funny because the more that it kind of circles the media, I mean, these guys see it, you know, yeah. they, they, they understand that, you know, the target's kind of on their back and they're embracing it. Um, and really starting with guys like Eli Cox, um, 
Marcus Cox, uh, Kenneth Horsey, uh, even Jagger and Flax. I mean, these are guys that are – they understand that the, so to say, weakest link of our team is they're they're trying to make it them. So that's just motivating them that much more to, you know, overcome what everyone is saying about them. And, I mean, you see it every single day, just the way that these guys are working in the weight room, the way that they're working with Coach Yens in, in the film room and trying to transition it to the field. So it's almost as if they're just using it, you know, as like fuel to the fire, that the more that they see, you know, people questioning our offensive line, they're taking offense to prove them wrong and more so to prove themselves right. Like you said, they just got to get back to what this program was built on, the big blue wall, establishing the tough, hard-nosed run game. And, I mean, that they're embracing it. They understand that that's going to make or break our team. And, I mean, as of right now and the way that this spring has been going, I mean, it's – from what I've seen compared to last year is 10 times better. So, I mean, that's very, very helpful to not only to them, but to the team. I want to get you out of here on, on some rapid fire. This is, this has been great. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Yep. All right. Uh, first one, best NIL opportunity you've gotten in Lexington so far. Oh, I would say I got Malone steakhouse to take the offensive line out to eat every Sunday after the game. That's nice. That's good. Good yep. steak after a game like that. That's oh, yeah. good or bad. I like that. That's that's a good one to have. Um, what's the best college stadium that you played in so far? The best, I would probably say Clemson's. Is it the real Death Valley or is LSU the real Death Valley? Hey, I'm in the SEC now, so I don't think I could say that. <laughs> that's true. Uh, what's the college stadium that you're most looking forward to to playing in this year besides Kroger Field? Uh, Georgia's. That was the only answer. Yeah, okay, that okay. makes sense. Um, I ranked you number two in my SEC quarterback rankings coming into this year behind KJ Jefferson. Based on my ranking of you, are you overrated, underrated, or properly rated? A good question. <laughs> um, I would say, honestly, as of right now, I would say properly just because I didn't get to finish off what I started last year. Okay, good. I didn't think you were going to go in that direction. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> QB1 in, in terms of Kentucky, QB2 in terms of the SEC. We'll stick with that for now. <laughs> okay. All right, last one for you. Uh, hypothetically speaking, how successful would Mark Stoops be in a fight? I mean, if you if you call him on the other day, he just talked to the media. I mean, I think he's winning 10 out of 10 times. I mean, you get him rolling, that, that, you don't want to be in his way. It's a different shade of red, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a tough dude, not going to lie. Devin, really appreciate the time, man. Best of luck with everything this year. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash, Final Four edition. Um, I first want to shout out Don Staley, Kim Mulkey. I know we don't dig into the women's game, and honestly, like we we really don't discuss a lot of men's hoops at at you know on on these airways because ninety five percent of what I write and talk about for our company is related to football. So that's just. Wanted to make sure that that's known, but it is remarkable to see what Don Staley, Kim Mulkey, both of them have done at places that didn't really have history when they arrived. Like to think that Don Staley is sitting there just, oh yeah, no big deal. Getting back to the final four undefeated team. 
10 of their 13 Sweet 16 berths at South Carolina belong to Don Staley. All five of the final four berths. As I've said many times before, Don Staley is a top three coach that I want to have beers with. Like mm-hmm. any sport, not just college, like pro as well. Every time I see her in the Affleck commercials with Coach K, I tell myself that it's actually like an angel and devil sort of thing. You can guess which one is which. Um, I was saying on Memphis radio last week that I threw up in my mouth a little bit when I saw Seth Davis say that Temple should try to make her the next head coach of the men's team. Didn't like that. They didn't. So good good on them for thinking that that could be a realistic possibility. Just such a ridiculous thing to propose. And I don't care. Like some people are in the comments are like, oh, you don't know how much Temple means to Don Staley. If she ever leaves South Carolina, which I hope that she doesn't, but if she ever leaves, I hope it's for like the Lakers. Like that's it. Yeah, I mean, like the Warriors, like replace Steve Kerr because I don't know. I, I don't I don't think she's going to, to, to take the men's job at Temple. No, right? literally, that's why I'm laughing because it's like, yeah, you're probably right. And it's funny because like, I don't think you understand how much this means to this person. Dude, it's just like the kind of like conversation we have. How about let that person tell me how much that means to them? Yeah. How about that? I'm sure if she called up Temple, she could probably get that job. She's just like, hey, here's the situation. You know me. I know you. But she obviously does not want it. So don't get on Facebook and tell me how much she wants it. Like, that just kills me. It's like, yeah, I hope people just get to do whatever they want. That's my thing. It's like, don't pressure people. Because the thing is, if you go into that situation anywhere, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be all these weirdos online who, you know, we've we've done a pretty good job avoiding these kind of weirdos in the Facebook group, at least. But like the people that every time a woman is involved in sports, just like, oh, it's like, or you could just continue building a dynasty and beat everyone how about that what if we're just the best at what we do is that fine like yeah, yeah there's like the coming home angle with it right. it's like she doesn't need to come home to temple all right <laughs> like with all due respect and i know that's where she was coaching before she was at south carolina but like she doesn't need to that's not like the, this big thing that she's been waiting for i don't know that that whole thing was just weird a little bit different than the kim mulkey coming home thing who i'm gonna be honest i might ruffle some feathers by saying this not a top three coach that i would want to have beers with <laughs> Not she just seems intense for me. She's not my cup of tea. Like her vibe is just a little much. It's a little much. And I'm not just saying that because she dressed like Elton John in the last game. All right. She's uh the target demographic is literally my mom. She is just my mom, but a basketball coach. She is so intense. She is so like well, that in your changes face things. Stuff. Now that you say that, because your mom is like a top three mom. I want to have yeah. beers with. My mom's a sweet lady, but when she had that quote the other day that she was just like, uh, it was when she was dressed. She had like the bright pink like blazer on. And it was like we're from Louisiana. We like sparkles. We like to eat and drink. Did I said that to my mom? She's like, yes, she gets it. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know if she's playing this character now that she's in Louisiana and doing it way more successfully than Brian Kelly did, but it's like. You are the demographic of the moms that shop at Rouse's. Like, I can't better explain that to you. Like, if you guys are from Louisiana, you know Rouse's. Like, it's so point being, like, yeah, I, I love that rivalry. And as, you know, just a neutral sports fan, I can appreciate that, you know, when you talk about the angel and the devil, like, Mulkey has kind of taken that devil role as far as you. she's known to be intense. She's known to yell. She's known to be not the easiest to get along with. And Staley is just like this cool, collected, like seems really chill, wears cool Jordans. And so that's like a rivalry that is so like, you know, we talked about rivalries and other good. It's like so natural that like these two could just hopefully stay in the SEC for a long time and just go back and forth because it took Mulkey a year and a half, if yeah. that, like a, a one year to turn it. I mean, it took like three months to turn it around from being bad to like solid, but then like the full turnaround took like a year and a half. So it seems like they're both pretty good at what they do and they're going to be here hopefully a while. Yeah, is it like going to become like what Tennessee UConn was, you know, like right. that, that sort of rivalry? Can can you have that? And having that within within the conference itself would be would be fun to would be fun to see. Um, I am working to try and get our friend Alyssa Lang on next week. 
to talk not just about those two heavy hitters in the SEC, but just this rise for for women's hoops right now and kind of how entertaining this has really been to to see the the star power and you know the Caitlin, Caitlin Clark and what she's doing for Iowa. I've got some Iowa friends that are just like everything Caitlin Clark all the time right now. Um, so yeah, I mean we will we'll try and have Alyssa Lang to to come on and and bring her uh, bring her perspective on to discuss that on the men's side. I'm oddly excited about this final four, despite the lack of blue bloods. I think it's weird that some people use that as a measuring stick for what's worth watching. I don't know why people do that. It, it feels like we crave new blood and then we criticize it. I, I don't know. Like if don't people like March Madness for Cinderella's, is it not interesting because your bracket is busted? Do you, cause there's this assumption that blue bloods can't have bad shooting games, which doesn't make any sense. And if right. it's some sort of a rock fight, it's because, oh, you know, this is this is why you can't have San Diego State and FAU in here. It's like, OK, I, I guess I, Duke won a bunch of rock fights down the stretch. Gonzaga scored a ton of points. And then two years ago in the championship game against Baylor, that game was so boring because it was just like, oh, yeah, they don't belong on the same floor as Baylor. So, like, why is that? You know, and Gonzaga's treated not like a Cinderella or anything like that, obviously but they're considered more like a modern blue blood. If there is such a thing without winning a national championship, I think also like while FAU San Diego state, that might be the game that prompts those responses, that crowd, UConn Miami should be awesome. It should be such a great game throughout the seeds. I have UConn beating San Diego state to win it all, which is not bold. It's not brash. I realize that Huskies are like minus minus one twenty five to win. San Diego State second plus 390. So pretty significant favorite, all things considered, for a tournament that has felt really random. And who knows? Maybe that means UConn's about to lose because that's kind of what it's been. That's been the story of this NCAA tournament. The second a team looks like a prohibitive favorite, it's like, boom, they're gone. Bama, Kansas State, Texas. Oh, hey, you're going to look like the favorite. Nope, not so much. Maybe UConn is going to be in line for a similar fate. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I've got San Diego State. Facing UConn in the title game. My bold and brash prediction will be Alex Caravan for tournament MVP. Those odds are at 50 to 1. Not good at all. Very similar to what we saw with the Heisman odds. Um, but if he has consecutive 20 point games, makes a bunch of threes, I think that's in play, even though Sonogo and Hawkins are kind of their, their overwhelming choices for UConn to be um player, you know, MVP of the tournament. But yeah, not a whole lot of bold and brash from me. Will. Any any thoughts on that? Are you have you been dialed into these UConn games? Because they're fun, man. They're oh, really I love watch. them, man. Yeah, hilariously enough, not to like do this whole thing, but I talk about Max Toscano, who is like the guy, like the X's nose guy I talk to all the time, and uh, the milk man. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, that's Mike Toscano. That oh. was the story I was about to tell. They're not related, and both somehow what? Go, one works at UConn, but went to LSU, and the other one went to UConn, and they're both UConn fans, but they're not related, but they look like brothers. And what? I keep thinking it's a bit or a joke, and now I've said it on here, so if it is a bit, they're gonna be like, "Ha ha, I got you." I keep asking both of them independently, but they're not related, and okay. they're both huge UConn fans, and I'm so happy for them because they're both just wholesome lads. And so I've been kind of dialed in. That's that's my pick to um win it all. And I just want to say, like going back to your thing about the Final Four, it's like. One of the worst guys in sports media is guy who constantly thinks about dollars and TV ratings. Um, like Ravel does it. Clay Travis. Honestly, oh, yes, sorry, that's, that, that's, just cough. Um, yes, Clay Travis but, and Dan Wilkin both suck. All right. Yes, I'm on record. And the funniest thing about that is that Clay Travis—that's barely a top five or six, barely a top ten thing he does. <laughs> 
if somebody else made that, they're all shaking. Be like, wow, this is annoying. But anyway, so uh, yeah, like you know what Ravel does. You know, someone Ravel like sucks a, too. It's like a public service, though. It's like he's the one guy who tweets all this crap, so nobody else has to. So you guys don't need to be diet Ravel out here. When guys try to be diet Ravel, it's like okay. And so point being, like the people that do that, where they're just like, oh. A lot of people are really mad that the big team lost. It's like, yeah, thanks, man. I'm aware of how advertising works. Like when people try to be television experts, and it's like, not that I am or anything, but it's, it's never like gripping analysis. It's never like, oh, it's like, yeah, uh, the networks like big brands. Wow, thanks, man. You're telling me someone's going to lose money like because they paid X for a sponsorship or for an ad placement. And now instead of being on, you know, one of these big like, big brands, it's going to be on FA. I get it. All right. It's a, But it's so funny that like people are actively rooting for like, the empire in these ways i'm just like okay man like that's what march madness is about it's different than football in my opinion because when you see like georgia playing tcu you're like i know how this is gonna go this is boring but in this it's like hey who's to say you know um sdsu or fau can't just win it all you're a game away really so like at this point we might as well just root for chaos but yeah people that root for big brands people that root for ad dollars that don't when it doesn't put money in your pocket, why do you care that brands are getting affected? That's my big thing. It's narrative pushing when I'm not sure what your narrative is. Right. You're pushing it anyways. I don't I don't understand that. And there are so many people out there that like to do it and like to say this is some sort of reflection of society in this sort of way. And I'm like, what? Why? Like, who cares? Just, this is the randomness of the tournament. Sometimes it spits out an FAU, San Diego State you know, national semifinal and, and that is reality. And it doesn't have to be some reflection of this big picture thing here or there. Sometimes that's just reality. And we just, you can watch it or you can not watch it and how the numbers are reflected. Don't, don't be the guy that's tweeting out. Oh my God, ticket prices are $8 for this game. Can you believe hey, this? Dude. What a shame. This would have been so much better if Alabama could have been here or if Kentucky could have been here. Well, they lost. They lost, and that's Tough. how this thing works. Yeah. That's what college sports is about, literally. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like who's the best interest? Like, you have a real GDP appreciator. Like, yeah, but those meeting rooms at Procter and Gamble are really tough this Monday morning. Like, bro, I don't care. They won't let me in those meeting rooms. <laughs> They're not, their problems are not my problems. They're not. I hope FAU and San Diego State give us a game for the ages. I hope oh, that yeah. game is awesome on mm-hmm. Saturday night. All right, let's go to the Saturday on South Podcast Facebook group. Uh, let's start with this one from Drew Page. Drew says, Caitlin Clark decides to take on FAU, Miami, San Diego State, and UConn all by herself. She drops a 1,000-point quadruple-double and declares herself national champion. That's a really good prediction. Love Especially that. from anywhere. She will, like, pull up from, from, like, 38 feet, just like it's nothing. Well, she was responsible for like the first 41 points that Iowa scored in mm-hmm. that in that game to get to the final four or something like that. I mean, she is unbelievable. Uh yeah, she would probably be willing to take on like 20 defenders and just still find ways to get shots up and probably make them. That's how good she is. Mm-hmm. Um our guy Emery says, no one wins. FAU is about to win it all and the NCAA shuts it down because they don't want to help any small school in any way. Shameless plug, I invited FAU to the SEC. I hope that doesn't offend anyone. SaturdayDownSouth.com. Small school, no more. Because once they get that SEC money coming in, people forget they're actually switching from Conference USA to the AAC next school year. So they Mm -hmm. will have more money coming in. But we need a boat school in the SEC. I guess Tennessee, boat school. Boat school, for sure. 
I feel like I feel like we have two boat schools. Isn't is Vandy a boat school? They have anchors. Does that make them boats or is no, that no 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 no? I don't mean a metaphorical boat, Will. I mean yeah. actual freaking boats. Mm. Boats on campuses. A I I I need FAU to be in the SEC so that they can be. I assume that much like Florida, if you've ever been to Florida's campus, they have all these mopeds everywhere. Mm-hmm. FAU is just boats. That's all they have. You, you, oh, I gotta get from this class to this class. Up on the boat, not a ferry, a boat, a yacht. They just all have yachts all over the place. That'd be great for the SEC. I just want to go back to the last because I had to Google this to make sure like the number I had was right. How about talking good TV numbers? How about the the game that you were just talking about, the women's Iowa game? Um, it had higher ratings than every NBA game on ESPN this year. Than every NBA game? Yep. This Dang. is from local news verified Sunday night's game between Iowa and Louisville brought in nearly 2.5 million viewers. A higher number than every NBA game on ESPN this year. Ooh, what narrative should I push when I tweet that out? Um, probably like I said, a positive one. That's that's when I like to bring up numbers when it's a sport growing and succeeding, not like ooh. <laughs> why why people hate the NBA? That, why, oh, well, that's my the NBA is a dumpster. This is what happens. Never mind. <laughs> this is what happens when China gets involved in the NBA. <laughs> There you go. That's my narrative. Connor, but I didn't want to mess your life up. There yeah. we go. We're on the same page, man. All right, cool. Probably don't realize all the things that I just brought on myself by saying something like that. That's fine. Um, Grant Haney says, the UConn Huskies continue their dominating run through the tournament and avenge the 2006 loss Jim Laranega handed to them while at George Mason. I'm so glad someone brought this up. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Hurricanes in the Elite Eight. Two nights later, the Aztecs suffer the same fate as they are defeated by UConn and the Huskies claim the school's fifth men's basketball national title in school history. The fourth time they've cut down the final four nets since the Lone Star State uh, in the Lone Star State and the second time in Houston with the win. The debate intensifies with sports pundits as to whether or not the five championships during four of the last five presidential administrations earned them status of college basketball blue blood. They are. They are, man. Like if they win four as a like in the last two decades, they'll have won four during the time that my alma mater, Indiana, who is considered by some to be a blue blood, maybe not so much anymore. Like Indiana hasn't even been to a national championship during that time frame. They haven't been to a final four during that time frame. Like, so what are we what are we really debating here? Um, yeah, UConn is absolutely worthy of being in that conversation. It's funny that he mentioned the 2006 loss that Jim Laranega, when he was at George Mason, gave UConn. Interesting sliding doors moment. If that team, that George Mason team, doesn't beat UConn, which had four first-rounders, shout-out Rudy Gay, Marcus Williams, college Marcus Williams, lefty point guard for UConn. That dude was awesome. Josh Boone. I don't think Josh Boone could make a free throw, but he was really good. Um if that team had got to the final four, they would have played Florida in the semifinal. That's year one of their of their repeat. Do they win the national championship that year? Probably. I mean, Probably. I, I don't know, man. Those Florida teams are good, man. I know, but I like, don't know. <laughs> that you you got to catch a break if you're going to win a title. You probably have to catch a break at some point, and they might have just been that good. But that front court matchup would have been. Oh man, that's that was my first thought. <laughs> that would have been that really good. Yeah. So I don't know. Interesting sliding doors moment. Little little tip of the hat. Florida fans should give Jim Laranega 
even though he's at Miami. I'm just saying, show the man his respect. He might have helped your dynasty exist. Yes, you can call it a dynasty if you win consecutive national championships in college basketball when there's only been one team to do that in the last three decades. You can absolutely call it a dynasty. Just saying, interesting, something to keep in mind. Yeah, I just I just want to say real quick, you know, um, my buddy Hayes, that's the Kentucky fan, the, one of my two Kentucky fan buddies with Drew Page, but he is like, I mean, world-class slander. I mean, a slander that I aspire to be. And one thing he always said about UConn was, well, they're a one-coach program. No. And that's interesting, right? Because it, we, we think about Calhoun and what they did, but since then, they have Kevin the tournament win with Ollie. And now they're going to have a second coach if they were to do it, you know, even go this time. So you erase that narrative in no time flat that they are their success you know outlives that and that's such an interesting bit of slander because if you want to be creative you're like duke is a one close program really i mean it's like because you got to have like sustained success outside of this one big window and like putting things in those right i mean that's why i feel the way i do uh, about oregon we're talking about the other day it's like that's kind of just chip kelly like sometimes there's a grain of truth in the slander but i think uconn has completely pushed past that in the last six or seven years they went from being a one coach program to being a one player program mm. also. And that's that was an interesting transition because Kemba went on that unbelievable run and then 2014 with Shabazz Napier. Those those teams were more like, ah, that's just the byproduct of the proverbial guy who takes over March. And so in a weird way, it kind of like took it off of UConn because I still have that moment every once in a while where I'm like, wait a minute. They've won three national championships since 2004. That is really, really good. And they could win a fourth. And ironically, this team is not just an individual, although Sonogo's like their stud. He's really good. But they're still like, they're not that guy that like that heat check guy. They are, mm-hmm. they move the ball better than anybody in the country. And they are so unbelievably unselfish that it's like, it's not really hey, this is just kind of like the one-man show. So it would be a very different narrative. And obviously with a new coach with Dan Hurley. So um, new coach by meaning like winning a national championship would be his first at at UConn. Um, If you guys want to see the pinnacle of advertising, why don't you go on YouTube and look up Shabazz is the man. It's a partnership that he did, a coffee place in Portland. I I won't give any more details. Just look up Shabazz is the man. It's a great ad. Remember that time when LeBron told the Heat to draft Shabazz draft Napier, him, and then he did, and then, yep. and then he left the Heat immediately after. I actually kind of respect for LeBron for doing that. <laughs> I'm gonna just be a GM right quick. Hold on, let me just switch my little hat. Okay, bye. I'm a player again. Yeah, unreal. Um, all right, let's go. To this one from Dave Kozart. Dave says, at this point, it seems like picking anyone but UConn would be bold and brash. You are correct. I wouldn't count out Larinaga and the Canes though. They looked dead against Texas and still won relatively comfortably. He's exactly right. I mean, they were even, I hate to do this. IU was up two with 13 minutes left. That game in the first round against Drake, like they were down what, like six with five minutes left or something. I mean, they were, they were down late in that game. They were down worse against, against Drake than they were against IU. Obviously they went on that ridiculous run at like the, the 12 minute mark, but Miami has been down in these games and they just always find a way to come back. And I love Isaiah Wong. I love Nigel Pack. Like they're just so fun to watch when they get rolling. They're going to try and buck the, I think it's the Ken Palm trend of like, you got to be top 35 or was it like top 40 in offensive and defensive efficiency to win a national championship. And defensively, like they're still not even the top 100. So they're like, and that's, I think kind of why those odds are where they're at because it's like, eventually you would think their defense 
or their their defensive issues kind of have to catch up to them. And against the UConn team, like Arkansas fans know this all too well. When UConn gets going, they they look just unbeatable. You're like, why are we even here? They could do this yeah. against anyone. Like, it's, I don't know how you stop this, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't count Miami out. There might be a feeling that Miami UConn is more like the real national championship. It very well could feel like that, but um, I would love to see Miami in a national championship as well. I think the winner of either of, of, of that game will, will be the significant favor probably to cut down the nets. I was joking with my boys the other day. It's like, wow, the ACC finally got that uh, return on investment from Miami. And it's like, it's like, Hey guys, the year's 2023 and Miami's finally made a final four. And it's like in football, it's like the edit. It's like, ah, <laughs> yeah, seriously, seriously. Michael Rowland. Love that name, by the way, Michael Rowland. That is, I always thought Scott Rowland was good in part, not just because he went to Indiana, but he was good because his last name, Roland, Scott Roland, that guy destined for success in athletics. There was no oh, yeah. doubt about it. Spelled differently, Michael Roland is than Scott Roland, but Michael Roland says, dude, I'd love to see FAU or San Diego State win it all. That would be fun. That would be fun because I don't know that there's a, a recent comp to it because that Butler team getting to a national championship and then losing, obviously, uh, in two ways that they did, they didn't cut down the nets. UConn still had the national championship pedigree like we were just talking about. So, like, as surprising as it was because that 2014 team was the only non-top three seed to win a national championship in the 21st century. It's like this – and so this next national champion – will automatically be the second team to do that in the 21st century. So it's going to feel like a very unique upset, despite the fact that UConn's obviously been really good. Um, that if, Butler that Butler team, I think, has aged so gracefully over time, and the like, upsets have looked so much less ridiculous because it's like, all right, well, you have Brad Stevens, who is was super young and was pretty much immediately qualified to be a great NBA head coach and then an NBA GM. And it's like, then you have Gordon Hayward, which at the time was like, Oh, it's this goofy white dude. He's probably going to like not pan out like whatever. Like, and it's just like, Oh no, this guy's like a multi-time all-star has been great for two franchises. Obviously he got injured, which kind of hurt his career. But it's like, yeah, that guy's like a legit, legit NBA player. It's like, actually this team wasn't that crazy when you were, they were actually kind of more talented than a lot of these teams based on that. Shout out the horizon league. Just yep. spitting out winners at the time. Um, yeah, it, it is one of those teams that has aged pretty well. And you're like, all right, it makes makes sense why they, they did what they did. More so probably the Brad Stevens thing, probably. Yeah. Above all else. Although it is weird to think that Gordon Hayward was not more decorated as a recruit. Late bloomer in high school. But he was still somebody that probably should have been on a lot more radars than than being on Butler's. Um, yeah, if FAU or San Diego State win it all, it would definitely feel like the least likely of any team in the 21st century probably the least likely since what like so we go all the way back to 85 villanova nc state houston would have been surviving mm-hmm. advance um and it would it would probably rank up there and i know like san diego state being a five seed doesn't really tell the full story in some ways it does and in other ways it's like oh yeah but if you go back to 2020 that team would have been potentially a one seed or a two seed in the NCAA tournament, probably a two seed with how good they were and how good they've really been these last few years with Brian Dutcher. But um, yeah, it would feel as unlikely as, as anything in recent memory for sure. Like anything in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. 
Let's end with this one from Krista Kissinger. Krista says, LSU upset South Carolina for their first national championship in women's basketball. Will, if that happens, will you buy the the blazer that Kim Mulkey was wearing? Is that what we call it? A blazer? Yeah, I feel like a, an outfit is what no, I call it. I, yeah. <laughs> Just an outfit. That's what the the, the ladies at Rouse's would call it. Yeah. I, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, like I joked about uh, it's 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 all just to me a function of Scott Woodward and the amazing amazing job he's done at LSU. Like we talked about this, the funnest baseball team I've ever seen in college baseball. And that, I mean, I didn't watch the teams in the '90s that were hitting dingers at LSU too. But I I just think that the way that he's built these programs, it's specifically women's basketball, where it's like was kind of an afterthought in Baton Rouge, just because you know you have football and then the men's team was like real the the presence of baseball is what's made it so hard to kind of get the other sports going because that's such a wild card where it's like oh. Actually, baseball is the second biggest sport in Baton Rouge, but like women's basketball has just taken off. And it's been such a pleasant surprise because I've never put my state of mind, my happiness into it before. And I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. What if, if they, if LSU wins national championship, can we, I don't, I don't think we need Brian Kelly to wear it for LSU's first game against Florida state. That's asking for too much. Can we get Brian Kelly to rock the Kim Mulkey outfit for the spring game? Just the spring game. Maybe not the exact same thing, but just a little hat tip. Just a little hat tip, something like that. That'll instantly go viral. People will drag Brian Kelly. And he's like, look, I'm showing Kim Mulkey love. What are you hating on me for? Listen, the thing is, if Kim Mulkey like, called Brian Kelly and was like, hey, man, I found the cheat code. This is how you ingratiate yourself to people. Brian Kelly would be like, yes, I put on the blazer. I got it. Because he tried and failed so many times. He'd be like, boom, you got the cheat code, bro. It worked for you. I'm going to do it, too. We go we laughing together. <laughs> Brian Kelly's he's kind of quietly upped his fashion game a little bit. I see him rocking the Air Force Ones. Like He's he's picking it up a little bit, like very quietly. He thinks He thinks maybe like, now is the time to bust out the Kim Mulkey look. I, I'm just saying, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. All right, let's end with some lad of the week. I got a good one. You're going to like this, Will. Okay. Jonathan Mingo, former Ole Miss receiver, preparing for the NFL draft. If you saw the tweet from Michael Katz, you know where I'm going with this. Mingo said that his favorite moment slash game at Ole Miss was when Elijah Moore pissed on the field. <laughs> Funny, because that was my favorite moment from Mingo's time at Ole Miss. Also... Is there a huge revelation buried in that quote? We were led to believe that he was merely mimicking a dog urinating. Did Elijah Moore actually urinate on that field, in that egg bowl? It is an egg bowl, so we can never rule anything out. I think a deep dive is needed. Maybe now might not be the best time to ask Elijah Moore because he's the only one who's truly going to know that. Maybe some equipment guy who's like, yeah, I got a hold of his pants afterwards. Probably not, though. This is a question for Elijah Moore. If we ever have him on these airwaves, I promise you we will we will say, hey, confirm or deny actual urine took place. Would he have been flagged twice if he had actually gone to the bathroom on the field? Double flag. See, this is why I like Spicy Connor, which is a kind of a new character that started to come out because I was waiting for like, well, that means he really undervalued this win against, you know, this team. Da, da, da. No, no, <laughs> he may have peed on the field. I can't even process this information right now. I that moment was so crazy. And we've you were like the king of the sliding doors moment of like how impactful that moment has been. And I feel like I keep learning things about this moment. I'm just like, I can't even I'm going to hope that that is the case and just never research it. That's one of those. It's all time, all time. Right. Uh, picture old Mrs. Kicker just kicking like a 50-yard extra point because <laughs> he gets double flat. It's like, nope, I, 
There, it's one thing to mimic a dog peeing, but to actually pee on the field, can't have that. Absolutely cannot have that. Double flag. The lineman just randomly slipping. It's like, how's this in an NBA court? Why is it wet? Uh oh. This man Eddie. just did this. It's like, Eddie. Did, did he know he had? Did he like save up all day to make sure that he was going to be able to go on that? <laughs> Never mind. I thought way too much about this. Yeah. Save um, us. Wow. This is going to be an incredible um, reset. So I'll just. Okay. My lad of the week is the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, so what? we have. Ugh. Listen. Okay. I am also a hater of the Dodgers. I understand that they can be kind of the evil empire and, and they've had some, you know, they, it seems like they're playing a different sport. Uh, them and the Yankees and a lot of baseball teams. It seems very unfair. However, it's good to see you know, when teams have money and resources when they do cool things. Um, and there's an annual tradition where they uh, renew the contract of Andrew Tolls. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he is a former Dodgers player slash prospect um, that, you know, was in the organization, played a little bit for them, hasn't played since 2018, but battled some um, some mental health issues. Had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, he's found sleeping uh, in an airport. Um, so the Dodgers went ahead and signed him and had signed him for the previous five years uh, to give him health care, give him access to mental health resources and give him, you know, the ability to uh, get himself out of that rut. Um, so I think that's super cool. Like I said, you know, too much given, much is given, much is tested. And, you know, we get annoyed with these teams and their huge payrolls. And like, I'm, you know, hand up, I'm one of them too, um, as like a, a adopted Braves fan. Um, but when you see a team that, has those resources and chooses to use them to like help a guy out potentially, you know, could have saved, if not at least elongated his life, because you know, when you're in that spot, um, it's obviously not going great places, but it's cool. It's cool to see, you know, it's, commentary on america's healthcare system sadly um but at the same time you know it's we are where we are where we are so it's cool to realize that and say okay well this guy needs you and you need this you know it it's more valuable to have this happen than it is to have this roster spot or this random pinch hitter that might come up a couple of times a year so good on the dodgers good on them you're right okay i didn't know the full extent of that story that's why we do a lot of the week because we mm -hmm. share good that has happened in the world and yes to see somebody actually using that to, to help somebody that is clearly in need and obviously um in a in a dark place that is great to see um anything else i think we covered it all today my gosh did we go all over the place in this show my you need more than this i don't know where you're gonna find it guys <laughs> find you another pod that does everything like we do at the saturday on south podcast uh Great show coming up next week as well. At some point next week, at some point, I don't know if it's going to be Monday or if, or if it's going to be uh, with our, our late week show, but we will be doing SEC teams as country artists 2.0. That will happen. Uh, also, Nolan Smith going to be joining us next week as well. Great interview coming up with the former Georgia star future first round pick. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the SDS pod, at Sat Down South, subscribe to our basketball newsletter, do that at bluechipgrid.com. Join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with figuring out or bold and brash. Thanks guys. Talk soon.